Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward now in in Acts chapter 18. I'm going to pause a bit and focus on these 18 months and on the church at Corinth uh, for today's message. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 23 of Acts chapter 18. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So I believe that Paul's love for the church at Corinth is worthy of our extended consideration. Even though this church persisted in immaturity for years to come, even attacking and reviling Paul at times, brothers and sisters, Paul never gave up on them. And he never stopped praying for them. And he never stopped loving them as a Christ-like shepherd of their souls. He continued to pastor them. In 80, 
55, approximately four to five years after Paul left Corinth. He wrote these words to the unstable church at, at Corinth. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare, declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then sometime later, in late AD 55, perhaps early 56, again, likely writing from Ephesus, perhaps somewhere else, Paul expressed the same concern to the Corinthian church. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So instead of becoming exasperated, Paul persisted in writing and in visiting the church at Corinth multiple times through the coming years, preaching and pleading with them to believe the gospel and to receive the grace of God, not in vain, but sincerely unto sanctification. So he was concerned about them. He was concerned that all of his teaching and service to them all of his love, all of his desire to build them up could possibly be received in vain. Even after all those years, he had that concern. So today's sermon is entitled, The Most Excellent Way. We'll consider the 18 months of teaching and preaching that Paul had in Corinth. And then we'll give a recap of Paul's future letters and visits to Corinth that came later after he leaves and then we'll go through kind of a bullet point summary of the persistent Corinthian immaturity, considering ourselves, considering our lives and our callings. And then we'll consider the most excellent way uh, that Paul writes about. And then some brief questions to know and to love and obey God and some considerations for our upcoming year, the themes that we would uh, be following that would guide us in this upcoming year. So first of all, 18 months of teaching and preaching in Corinth. Verse 11 tells us, He continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So let's recall that at this point in the second missionary journey, the Lord Jesus Christ has granted Paul all the necessary financial means to focus upon full-time pastoral ministry to this new church, a location to preach and the means to preach. So he no longer needed to work part-time as a tent maker, since Timothy and Silas had returned with aid from Macedonia. So that's an important thing to consider. He's able to focus on full-time ministry as a place, and all of his needs are met. In addition, via a comforting vision to him given by the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is provided with the mental freedom from the threat of physical harm from the Jews during this time of preaching. He had been under that constant threat up until that time. And finally, in this same comforting vision, the Lord has promised Paul a fruitful ministry during this time, saying, I have many people in this city. So Paul was granted some very significant blessings at the front end of this 18 months. I think we should consider these sweet 18 months that Paul had in Corinth, especially when compared to his prior experiences in other cities, where he really was constantly under the threat of Jewish persecutions and unsure about finances and unsure about gospel fruitfulness in those prior efforts. In addition, I think it's important to consider Paul's experience of the Lord's love for him and the Lord's love for this church. 
Paul experienced this. Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision for this purpose, showing him and then verbally comforting him, saying to Paul, I am with you, giving Paul the sole sure foundation of courage and peace, the presence of God. It seems like we can wonder, we can only wonder how many times Paul re recalled this sweet vision from Christ during the subsequent years of myriad troubles with these people. Paul had tasted of Christ's love for these believers in Corinth. And sharing in Christ's love, Paul went on to be controlled by Christ's love for his people. Perhaps Paul recalled his vision of Christ when he wrote to the Corinthians much later, years later. The love of Christ compels us. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Commentary says they were under the sweetest and strongest constraints to do what they did. Love has a constraining virtue to excite ministers and private Christians in their duty. Our love to Christ will have this virtue and Christ's love to us, which was manifested in this great instance of his dying for us, will have this effect upon us if it be duly considered and rightly judged of. Duly considered and rightly judged of. This is how Paul sought to lead them away from receiving grace and vanity. This is how he sought to lead them away from believing in vain. <clears throat> when we are gripped by Christ's love, brothers and sisters, most especially in reflecting upon his suffering and his death upon the cross, considering this, we will be compelled Controlled by his love. Brothers and sisters, do we duly consider and rightly judge of the love of Christ? I suspect, if we are honest with ourselves, we will see our soul's extensive deficiency in this regard. And thus, how we are often controlled and compelled by lesser loves than Christ's love. So let us learn from Paul how to be controlled by the love of Christ. And that would mark us. So quickly a recap of Paul's future letters and visits to Corinth. I think it's important to see the ongoing difficulties and the complexity of his relationship with them and how he never gave up all the work that he did. So Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is not recorded for us in the scriptures, but is mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. <clears throat> so, sometime after Paul left Corinth here in, in Acts chapter 18, he felt the need to send a letter to the Corinthians warning them not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, of course, he clarifies later that that doesn't mean unbelievers. That's in reference to brothers who are unrepentant and who are living in sin. 
When he gives this command here, we need to recall the legendary evil of the city of Corinth. We covered it last week and the week before. Its sexual immorality was so unlimited, so prevalent, so constant, that the very idea of this type of extensive, constant sexual immorality in the Roman Empire was expressed in this way to Corinthianize. And as we discussed last week, perhaps in this day and age, we could call it to Americanize, sadly. So we see here that the Corinthians were slow to understand and obey. Because really it's unthinkable, isn't it, that Paul had not already warned the Corinthian believers during his 18 months about this when he was teaching them extensively from the Word of God for that 18 months. They didn't get it then. They didn't get it with this letter that he wrote, and now he's having to address it again. We see also the Corinthians were prone to misunderstand Paul. Now, there were also all these others who were being divisive, these supposed super apostles. And who knows what kind of confusion they may have been bringing in. But in any case, the Corinthians were prone to misunderstand Paul. He says, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he's correcting their misunderstanding of what he had written. You see, he had warned them against keeping company with unrepentant brothers or sisters who were caught up in various sins, and he lists them there. But instead, the Corinthians were avoiding lost sinners, which is contrary to the work of the gospel. We have to be going out into the world and engaging with people if we're going to be faithful to the gospel. Now, Paul's second letter, in terms of chronologically to the Corinthians, is recorded in the scriptures for us as the book of 1 Corinthians. And this letter was written approximately A.D. 55 from Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey, which is mentioned to us in the scripture that we read, the end of the scripture that we read this morning from Acts 18. And it was written after Paul had received written and verbal communication from the church at Corinth. What was the verbal communication? We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. There was also written communication that was likely brought with this contingency. 1 Corinthians 7 and following verses throughout the remainder of the book say things like this that attest to the written portion of the communication. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So we see the major organizational understanding of 1 Corinthians, which is unique amongst Paul's epistles, to be organized like this. The first six chapters are written by Paul to respond to the verbal concerns brought by those of Chloe's household. And the last ten chapters are to respond to the written concerns that came to him in that letter. We see here also that the Corinthians are not only prone to misunderstanding but they were prone, and they were, they were slow learners. They were prone to disagree and to fight with one another. There was contentions. That's strife. That's wrangling. So even after 18 months of extensive teaching from God's word, from Paul, the apostle, and even though he had already written to them once since leaving, multiple severe problems persist and continue to need his attention. And so the love of Christ compares, co compels Paul to write the book of 1 Corinthians. 
Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians, he always sought to edify the Corinthians in all that he did for them. But we do all things, beloved, for your edification. So Paul was active in love towards them with the goal to build them up in Christ. He wanted to build them up. He saw the threats to them, that they could be torn down by their own sin and by the problems in their midst. And he wanted to continue to build them up. Paul was compelled by the love of Christ. Paul's third letter to the Corinthians is not recorded for us in Scripture. So there's a third letter that he wrote, and it's also not in Scripture like the first letter he wrote, but is mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So we see that Paul had written a letter between the second and third letter. And, well, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which is his third letter. And we also see that after leaving Corinth during his third missionary journey, Paul had gone back to Corinth for a sorrowful visit prior to writing 2 Corinthians. So he not only wrote, he went. 2 Corinthians 7 also speaks of this third letter that's not in Scripture. Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So we see that this third letter was used of the Holy Spirit to bring repentance into the hearts of the Corinthian believers. So we begin to see some movement of the Holy Spirit to work in these folks, to bring them to repentance, to bring them to love. And it appears that the majority of the Corinthians had repented by the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions majority. <clears throat> we also know that there's a minority that he has to firmly correct in 2 Corinthians. So we see here also, again, that the Corinthians needed frequent correction and redirection through the years of Paul's ministry to them. It is good for us to note that the Corinthian church came to repentance. At least the majority of the church likely did. So Paul's love for Christ, for Christ's church, is again on display here with this third letter and with this visit. Not only does he write a third letter to this stormy church, but he traveled from Asia Minor to Greece. Did he sail did he go by land? Either case, it was not an easy journey. It wasn't a 30-minute drive to the airport and an hour jaunt on a short trip across the sea. It was a hard journey, and it interrupted his ministry at the time, probably in Ephesus, but his ministry during his third journey. And he went there to shepherd these threatened souls. The love of Christ compelled him. He never gave up on them. The fourth letter from Paul is recorded in Scripture for us as the book of 2 Corinthians. And this letter was written, as we've said, later in AD 55 or perhaps early AD 56. And it's written as a response to the update that was brought from Titus. He had sent Titus to them to encourage them and to see how they were doing and to deliver some message to them. Titus went. He did it. He came back. 
Here's the report. Here's how Paul speaks of the report in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So, we begin to see a dawn, a brightening of things in the church at Corinth at this point in time. And so 2 Corinthians is written within this context of, of growing gospel success in Corinth. Evidence of not believing in vain. Evidence of sincerely receiving the grace of God through their repentance and the way that they were behaving towards one another. And the church had been brought to repentance over numerous issues. But there's still a minority in the church that are still stirring up problems. Paul continues to love them as well. Kaiser says in his Bible survey sermon from 2 Corinthians, of course, Titus also told Paul that there was still a minority in the church that was creating havoc. These super apostles were not pleased at the actions of the majority. The majority was now siding with Paul. So Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit to write this letter of 2 Corinthians to wrap things up, to assure them of his love, to convince everyone of why the super apostles did not reflect biblical leadership, and to help move things forward. It is a marvelous tribute to good leadership ministry through extremely tense and complicated times. He could have given up on the minority. He could have stopped trying to move them forward and just focused on the majority. He does both. He does that which is joyful and sweet and easy and profitable for those who hear and brings joy to him. But he also does that which is difficult, which is not profitable for the hearer if they do not receive him. He shepherds as he is called in the, in the good, in the pleasure, pleasant, and in the difficult. Paul demonstrates the love of Christ. Next, it appears likely that Paul was in Corinth later as a welcomed guest in the home of Gaius who hosted the whole church at that time. Now, this is assuming that what we believe about the book of Romans, most commentaries say Romans was written approximately AD 57 from Corinth. So that means he would have been staying in the home of Gaius and writing the book of Romans from Corinth some two years after the writing of 2 Corinthians, two to three years later. Romans 16, 23 says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. So again, here's a bright, another bright spot that he's welcome in Gaius' home, welcome in the home that hosts the church at Corinth at this time. So we are encouraged by the continued fruitfulness in the church at Corinth. So what do we see here, brothers and sisters? I want us to see Paul's persistent love and attention to the entire Corinthian church, all of them. All of them, not just the ones that were easy. Not just the ones that he clicked with. The whole church. And he did not walk away and forget about them. But he kept in touch and the same love of Christ that compelled him to plant that church 
to risk there like he had risked elsewhere. It's the same love that compelled him to sweetly shepherd the church and long for Christ to be formed in them. He was compelled by the love of Christ, brothers and sisters. He considered duly and judged rightly regarding the death of his Savior upon the cross for him. He valued Christ's sacrifice. It showed up in his life. So let's look at some of the persistent immaturity in the church of Corinth. Let's consider ourselves as we do this. Let's consider those around us as we do this. 1 Corinthians bullet point list. 1 Corinthians going in order through the book of Corinthians. And this one was written about, again, A.D. 55, so approximately three to four years after he had left. Divisions, contentions, worldly pastor worship, extensive pride, persistently carnal and immature, unable to stomach the call to maturity. They needed milk, not meat. They would not take the call to growth and maturity and sanctification. They had envy. They had strife. They had divisions. They were judgmental of Paul's weaknesses and his deficiencies. And they were drawn into distrusting the man who had come to them with the gospel to begin with. They were prideful, they were ungrateful, and they were even brazenly prideful in that he, they were puffed up. They were so stubborn that Paul had to threaten the rod because of their extreme rebellion. They were tolerating flagrant sexual immorality in their midst, and they had developed a Christian ghetto mentality avoiding sinners outside the world while tolerating sinners within the church, unrepentant sinners within the church. They had sued one another within the secular courts of Corinth. They had swindled and cheated one another, and they were moving on into harlotry and greater sexual immorality. They were naive and ignorant on how to find a spouse in purity and honor. And again, remember, 18 months he's been with them. They were naive and ignorant regarding marriage and divorce. They were confused regarding circumcision. And they were shockingly forgetful about the very near and imminent judgment of Christ coming upon the Jews and the Roman Empire that he had taught them about. They were naive about foods that were offered to idols. They attacked Paul's apostleship and his work ethic. They were given over to lust and idolatry. They actually had food fellowship with real demons, he says. They were unworthy at the Lord's table, divisive at the Lord's table. They were disorderly. They were autonomous. They were individualistic in their use of the gifts that God had given to them. And they had placed love under their feet not appropriately cherishing and prioritizing love as the preeminent virtue of the Christian life. 
Instead, they developed a pride in prophecy and tongues and knowledge and personal eloquence and wealth and appearance. They had a disorderly use of their gifts with an overemphasis on tongues and a subsequent devaluing of prophecy, that is, word-based ministry. And things are so bad that Paul wonders if they've forgotten the gospel and believed in vain. He questions whether they're even believers. They're naive and misled about the resurrection of the dead, and they continue to have frequent fellowship with evil company in some way. That's first, that's first Corinthians. In Second Corinthians, even though things have improved, as we've discussed, they're still unsure of Paul. Is he, is he unsteady? Is he impulsive? And they're unforgiving toward a repentant brother, likely the one who was appropriately disciplined eventually, the one that they had been tolerating. But then they were, when he did repent, they wouldn't bring him back in, it appears. So they didn't handle it right on the front end or the back end of this man's sin, it looks like. There's some suggestions that they thought Paul was using the gospel for his own profit. They're still not trusting Paul, looking for commendations, looking for more credentials for him. They're tempted to lose heart. They're tossed about. They have even further need to consider the resurrection and the final judgment again. And again here in 2 Corinthians 6, he has the same concerns for at least some of them. Have they received grace in vain? So he's clearly very, very concerned that there are tares still in the midst of that church. They have what Paul calls restricted affections. And that would include towards God, but he actually says they have closed hearts towards him. They have closed hearts towards Paul. They are unequally yoked with unbelievers. They need a call to holiness and a call to have an open heart toward Paul, and yet they still wonder if Paul has corrupted or cheated people. And Paul tells them that some amongst them need his bold correction. He needs to even threaten the use of this correction amongst them towards those whom he describes as unrepentant. And he needs to justify his authority over them. It's something that they are still questioning. He doesn't give up. He doesn't just throw up his hands and walk away. Paul is concerned that their minds may be corrupted away from the simplicity that is in Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. And they still accused Paul of being an inferior apostle if they received him as an apostle at all. And we see that they needed to be taught about how to respond rightly to insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties because he had to share with them what Christ taught him about his own thorn in his flesh. And that he delighted in insults and persecutions and hardships and difficulties. They needed to learn this. He was concerned about unrepentant sinners who were still in their midst at this point in time. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, 
selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, <clears throat> and lewdness which they have practiced. Paul gives a direct warning to the unrepentant towards the end of 2 Corinthians and calls them to consider whether they are even in the faith at all. So he loves this church and he's been at it with them for all of these years. They have demonstrated so many sins and failures. Successes, yes. Growth, yet. Growing, growth, yes. Growing repentance, yes. Grace being multiplied in their midst, yes. But, you know, he had been personally attacked by them. Not only questioning his credentials, but even his character. Years and years of this behavior, of this pain coming at him from this church. Yet Paul never gave up on them. He never gave up on them having Christ formed in them. Never gave up on being connected with them in sincere Christian love, affection, and trust. Not only did he go after their heart for God, he went after their heart for himself. That they would be tied together in bonds of Christian love together. How could Paul walk this way toward them after so many offenses and so much unrepentant lawlessness? Especially since it was personal. Brothers and sisters, you know the answer already. It's the most excellent way. And it is a way that is rarely trod in this world. We can speak of it. We can define it. We can get our dictionaries. But do we live it? Paul, controlled, compelled by Christ's love, aware of Christ's death for him, valuing Christ's sacrifice, aware that God had saved him from a death that he had earned. He went on, this one who had murdered the church, to live out a life of humble gratitude toward God and others. Certainly not perfectly, but finding his ability to endure from the one who had endured the worst pain and suffering, the one who had endured the cross for him. Let us hear the words that Paul wrote in the second part of the book of 1 Corinthians. I'll read from verse 27 of chapter 12 through to verse 13 of chapter 13. May the Lord bless us to grow up in love as we hear these words. May the Lord bless us to see our lesser loves as we hear these words. Now you are the body of Christ and severally members thereof. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, divers kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but desire earnestly the greater gifts? 
And moreover, a more excellent way I show unto you. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child... I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So some questions, brothers and sisters, to know and to love and obey God uh, with an eye towards 2024 together. Ask yourself, do you really believe and live out the truth that love is the most excellent way of living? That love is greater than any spiritual gift, greater than any personal talent, more important than any doctrinal debate, that love is greater than miracles, greater than knowledge, greater than prophecy, even greater than mountain-moving faith, greater than totally selfless generosity unto poverty, greater than even dying in flames. I believe we need to confess to God our sin of not believing and obeying him regarding this great call to be controlled by the love of Christ. Do you agree? Will you confess this sin to God for yourself? Repent and receive his gracious forgiveness and the power that you need to grow up, to put away childishness, and to become a mature Christian. I believe it's something that we all need to do. And I know that we will always be growing in this and that in many ways we could say this anytime. But I say this with a more sincere and deeper urgency than just the typical call that any Christian could receive. I believe we are selfish people. I believe we are people who love ourselves in ways that are wrong and that are selfish and that cause us to be unlike Paul and to not love others the way that calls us to. 
Will you grow up and put away childishness and be a mature Christian? And this is a question for the oldest of us to the youngest of us. And along these lines, will you join in wholeheartedly with the themes for Cornerstone Presbyterian Church for the year of 2024? What is that? Enlarged hearts unto lives of humble and grateful worship and obedience to God. Simple. Enlarged hearts unto lives of humble and grateful worship and obedience to God. Psalm 119.32. These are some verses that I hope you will keep close in this coming year. I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. Psalm 27.8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 34.18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Ephesians 5.20 Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, in this next year, will you seek the Lord's face, crying out to Him to enlarge your heart toward Him and His people and toward your neighbors? to grant you sincere humility and gratitude toward him so that we may, like Paul, be controlled by, be compelled by the love of Christ unto lives of love and obedience toward God as we do his will in this earth. I hope that we will look forward in hope towards 2024 in how the Lord will work in us as we look to him. <coughs> In this regard. <coughs> Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess our sin to you that we are filled up with lesser loves, that we are stricken with pride and with ingratitude. And that we are so prone to ignore you and to forget you and to not seek your face. And to walk away from your glorious commandments. Father, we do now together confess this sin to you and repent of these things. And Lord, we do together now seek your face. Asking you to enlarge our hearts unto lives of sincere humility, brokenness, and contrition, lives welling up with constant gratitude and thanks and praise towards you, walking so that as we go speaking, as we go doing your will, we would do so compelled by the love of Christ, in whose name we pray.